It's the 25th of June, 2016, and this is episode 298. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Stephanie Murphy and Andreas Antonopoulos for a wide-ranging discussion about the upcoming Bitcoin block halving event. We talk what it means, where it fits in context, and how running into Moore's Law could re-decentralize mining for fun and profit. Let's join the conversation now. I actually looked up the date of the last halving. It was November 28th, 2012. Okay, November 28th, 2012. That sounds just about right, actually, for when I was buying this thing. I think it was over Black Friday. That was what happened. It was oh, a combination yeah, that would of those be exactly Black Friday weekend, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so interesting. So the last time there was some kind of price kerfuffle, but it was four years ago. The dynamics in the ecosystem are so totally different. I've seen people who are saying, well, the you know, uh, Vinnie Lingham, uh, who used to be the CEO of Gift until recently, um, wrote an article talking about how essentially the happening is not built into... Uh, to the price of Bitcoin. And so therefore, there's going to be, you know, not necessarily immediately, but over the kind of short term or medium term after that, uh, a run up in price simply because the market fundamentals will have changed. And so that'll kind of impact things. But then I've seen other people who are saying that the price has already, you know, been building this in because it's been a known event for years. And so there probably won't be anything. What besides the price does this matter for? I think we should talk about the technology. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, every time there's a halving of, of the Bitcoin block reward, it's an economic thing, but it's also a technological thing. And the industry that you can see immediately that it affects is miners, obviously, because mining has turned into an industry years ago. You know, it's I remember very, very early on in Bitcoin, a lot of people were talking about, oh, should I get into mining? Those days are way, way long gone. Now there's the professionals are handling it in China, in Norwegian climates and freezing places where they don't need to spend money on cooling. There's all kinds of people that are mining, but they're all professionals at it. So what that means for them is that miners have to finance their mining operation by selling some of the bitcoins that they get from mining to pay their operational costs like cooling, like electricity, like whatever else that is involved, uh, buying new equipment, maintaining their existing equipment. So they have to sell off some, some of those Bitcoins. And how much they have to sell off depends on the price of Bitcoin, right? Because their costs are going to be essentially fixed in some government currency, some fiat currency. They have to fund their operation somehow. The price of Bitcoin can fluctuate, even though they're always going to get the same amount of Bitcoins from every block they mine. Then it becomes an interesting game because when Bitcoin's high, mining is more profitable, right? Newly mined Bitcoins can fetch a higher price. And when Bitcoin's low, mining becomes less profitable. Maybe some miners go out of business. When the block reward drops, mining is going to become less profitable. It's, it's essentially putting a squeeze and it's ratcheting down the profits that a miner can make because, you know, unless they increase their level of technology or they add more mining power, which is also expensive, um, they're going to get half as many Bitcoins as they were getting before the halving. So they have to make sure they're running a really lean and efficient operation. And of course, people worry that this is going to lead to centralization, right? Because the fewer mining professionals there are, the more, quote, centralized it becomes. And, you know, there's always the debate between, well, is it really Centralization, or is it just a sort of division of labor and specialization and letting the professionals handle it, uh, or efficiency? Well, that was a great introduction. There, I think 
there are some very interesting technical issues that have popped up as we watch this unfold that have to do with understanding really the consensus algorithm and the rules that have been put in place from inception that still apply today the promise with this um with bitcoin's heartbeat the 10 minute heartbeat of block issuance and how that affects the total cap of coins and and why the happening is happening um at this estimate on July 10th for example um and, and what that means i think there's some interesting little tidbits of information there by the way you know what else's heart beats every 10 minutes once every 10 minutes a hibernating bear <laughs> <laughs> science fact of the day let's hope it's a hibernating bull yeah exactly <laughs> well so okay so so you guys are talking about this as though it's from a i mean it Stephanie, you were talking about it from both an economic and a technological perspective. But again, kind of the root of all these issues seems to be economic to me. So I do actually wind up back on the price because the price is what determines how significant or if the, like if there's going to be a problem uh, for people who are mining right now, it will be because the supply goes down, but the price does not go up in order to compensate for that. And sure, it might get more competitive in an absolute sense. But realistically, if the price goes up to double what it is now, then functionally, we're in the same place we were before. Well, the price already went up to double what it was. Well, relative to what? Relative to, I think what we saw was the bottom in terms of uh, mining efficiency or mining profitability was probably around the $220 mark. And what happened when we hit that price point is that um, then we saw the biggest plateau, the longest lasting plateau, and in the early days, a small slump in hash rate. So hash rate has been increasing by leaps and bounds since 2009. Now, as the price started going down, the rate at which the hash rate was increasing reduced a bit. So because the price was going down, people weren't investing as much in new mining equipment and upgrading mining equipment. Right. And then when we hit 223, which was the bottom, I believe, and stayed there for a while, even up to $260, $270 per Bitcoin, people were still adding hashing power. Below 250, I think we saw this prolonged plateau and leveling off in hashing power, as well as a small slump. And to me, that was an indicator, which is at this rate, miners are barely breaking even, so they're just keeping, keep going, for as long as they can in order to maintain equipment. And they're slowing down their rate of upgrades to more dense mining equipment. And that's something we've got to talk about, which is the transition to 16 and 14 nanometer, which has been a very important trend. Okay, but aren't miners always basically always just barely breaking even? On average... I mean, I know it depends on the price, but it's meant to be that way, right? Like it, mining isn't, we've talked about this on the show before, mining isn't supposed to be wildly profitable. On, on average, but, but within that average, you have enormous variation. So you have the miners who are mining on uh, one generation behind equipment, uh, who are perhaps even making a small loss while trying to upgrade and recoup some of their investment, and maybe they're locked into a long-term electricity contract and they're pushing down the profitability. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the miners who have just deployed a batch of brand new, high-density, high-efficiency mining equipment who are making a significantly higher profit. 
and and the average ends up being somewhere in between and of course as an industry as a whole it's tuned to barely break even but within that there's a lot of variation yeah the efficiencies that can be obtained from you know like geothermal energy or from free energy as people talk about coming from china like again those are things that aren't applied equally through the system so it's really hard to talk in generalities and when you talk in averages that's kind of where you wind up is it's like it actually seems a lot more level than it actually is because you have so many spikes in these different places based on the local advantages and and up to recently there's been a significant difference in the ability to source the latest highest density asics because this race to higher density ASICs was so pronounced. We were seeing anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 fold improvements in mining efficiency. So from CPU to GPU to FPGA to the early ASICs, which were 28 nanometers or even less, to the most recent ASICs at about 16 nanometers, what we've seen is each year equipment that produces 10,000 times or 1,000 times more hashing power and so what that does is it creates a situation where you buy mining equipment and it's obsolete in two months or three months. That creates an industry where the time it takes to source, produce, load onto a truck, unload from the truck and rack, mount and turn on your mining equipment, that time period has to be really squeezed as small as possible because the thing that you bought is becoming obsolete every second that ticks by. And that concentrates mining much more than any other factor because it means that you have to be on a very, very short supply chain directly next to the fabrication, the semiconductor fab. And that's really driven much of the centralization together with cheap power uh, into the areas of China that are near the semiconductor hubs. That's changed. And I think that's something that a lot of people have missed. Because you go from 1,000 to 10,000 fold increases per year, and then we reach 16 to 14 nanometers, and we're now at the front of Moore's Law. And Moore's Law, which for those who don't know is by Gordon Moore, and it's basically the idea that every 18 to 24 months, the power, uh, the capacity of processing doubles, or the same processing is available for half the price because the density of transistors doubles. This law is fast in the general computing sense. But when you compare it to a thousand-fold increase, it's a snail's pace, right? So it, it's almost like you've got this enormous increase for six, seven years, and now suddenly we're down to only one doubling every two years. And what that does is it means that if you buy equipment now at 16 or 14 nanometer, you're not going to get a, a, a 10 times better thing in three months, you're going to have to wait two years, which means shelf life extends dramatically. Uh, and that changes the dynamics of the industry very dramatically. So everybody's now converging, piling up in front of the wall that is Moore's Law. So to this point, Andreas, basically, we've been going so fast because we've been catching up to Moore's Law. Yes. And now that we've kind of reached this, this level, then we're stuck to this slower. It's still, you know, fast compared to really any other type of industry one could think of in terms of it becoming more efficient, getting cheaper, getting more powerful. And I was just looking at graphics cards the other day and noticing exactly the same thing. Power supply you know, requirements have gone down, and yet the form factor has gotten smaller. So there are just like huge efficiencies to be gained from that, even using Moore's Law, right? Waiting a year between iterations. But by stretching out that iteration, by stretching out each generation, you make it actually potentially viable for people who would not be able to keep up with you know, a three-month turn cycle 
to, you know, a two-year turn cycle is much more reasonable. If it takes you a month to get it, well, in a three-month system, then that's, you know, a third of your time. In a two-year system, it's much, much less. And, and also, the change in profitability for something that over two years becomes twice as efficient is very different from the change in profitability of something that in three, four months could become four or five times as efficient, which means that the difference between the most efficient miner and the least efficient miner uh, narrows considerably. So it, it levels the playing field, which is actually going to take off a lot of the centralization pressure caused by that very short supply chain. But interestingly enough, this is happening just as we're approaching the halving. So the 16 nanometer technology has has now probably been sourced and I, I i'm not sure about the the exact dates but i would say I've, i started seeing reports of early prototypes about six months ago um we do have some prototypes of 14 nanometer but i would say we we've only just seen these trickle into the market lately and we saw some big increases in hash rate as a result of that that means that there will be a lot of miners who are at the more efficient rates at the moment who have much more breathing room with this you know, and as I said before, if we assume that the bottom for their profitability was about just under 250, then at the current prices per dollar, the halvening has already been absorbed in terms of their ability to remain profitable, especially if you consider that many of these miners buy electricity on long-term contracts, six months to a year sometimes, uh, which means that once they've paid for that, whether they use it or not, they need to, they don't, they can't turn off. So it makes sense that the happening could be absorbed because they knew it was coming and they knew like roughly when and they've been preparing for it and getting ready. And also this um, constant improvement in hashing power and the getting smaller of the ASICs and getting better of the ASIC chips has constantly been going on and has been applying evolutionary pressure or competitive pressure to the system of miners. But what I'm curious about is, and I think we may have talked about this before, but I need a reminder. Is this technology that makes these 14 nanometer chips from what was previously 28 nanometer, is that useful for anything else besides mining bitcoins? Yes, uh, the, the semiconductors that produce 16 and 14 are used primarily for GPU and CPU. So all of the latest Intel and processors, as well as all of the NVIDIA Radeon graphics cards are using the the latest highest density uh, multi-core processing systems that they can now the thing is that until getting access to those semiconductor fabs ones that are cutting edge it always lags a bit in bitcoin because those are usually booked up for years with you know multi-million or sometimes billion dollar investments by set by large manufacturers to to produce desktop chips and and iPhone and Android phone semiconductors and graphical cards. Okay, so it's not even Bitcoin mining that's driving the technology for the computer and phone industry. It's the other way around, basically. For now, now until this point. Until this point, yeah. yes. We've basically now almost reached parity where the volume of purchasing is allowing uh, Bitcoin miners to get access to some of these semiconductor fabs. So they're now only one generation behind instead of like four or five generations behind mm. in terms of Moore's Law generations. Is there a limit to how small they can get? Sm so smaller is better from what I gather. This is my completely non-technical understanding. Smaller is better, smaller is faster. But 
Is smaller gonna- is better and faster because it's more efficient. These are efficiency gains. And so when you make ah. it smaller, it requires less actual electricity or power in order to power it. And you can fit more into the same amount of space. So that's why mm-hmm. as they get smaller, they get more powerful and they get cheaper in terms of how much it costs to run. Think of 14 nanometer or 16 nanometer as describing the resolution of the smallest element that you can etch onto, yeah. um, onto a, a silicon plate. So it's, it's mm. literally, it's resolution, right? I'll use a very crude analogy. It's like developing film, the way silicon is etched is a process that is similar in concept to photography, although they don't use visible light anymore. You basically create a negative image on the silicon, which you then etch off around it with acids and things like that. And so it's about the resolution that, of the image that they can produce. And if you uh, reduce the element, the pixel, uh, from 16 to 14 nanometers. Now you can put a lot more pixels, and each pixel, if you think, could be a transistor component or something like that, uh, an element of a logical gate or memory uh, element. It does help me. I wasn't thinking of it as etching. Okay, this is going to sound dumb. <laughs> this out but i'm picturing like like a circuit and so there's components of a circuit that can only get so small but maybe that's the wrong way to think about it that's the wrong way to think about it it's not that they can only get so small it's that the current technology limits us to how small they can be and Mm -hmm. the so you can think about like a a blueprint for a circuit Uh, you could make it a hundred feet by a hundred feet or mm-hmm. you could make it a, you know, the size of a stamp, or you could make it even smaller than that. And functionally, it would perform exactly the same thing. It's just a question of how much space it takes and how much power it takes, because the bigger it is, essentially, the more power it takes to, to bridge all those various gaps. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So you want it to be as small as possible. It's just that we've been limited by technology. So the idea here is that as Bitcoin now is, has approached and is basically at the, the limit, to this point, it's been, you know, uh, Bitcoin following along in the footprints laid by the rest of the semiconductors industry. But from here on out, the, the incentives might actually shift so that it's Bitcoin that's driving technology fa- uh, forward faster than it was able to go, uh, you know, when it wasn't being driven by the kind of economic incentives of Bitcoin, but slower than when Bitcoin was able to just like run for free, right, uh, along a path that had already essentially been blazed. Now, now we're to the point where Somebody has to blaze the new path, and it might actually be Bitcoin because the incentives make it quite interesting to do that. Mm, Okay, well, that's great. That's a great summary up to this point. Well, of course, the disclaimer here is that this was a bunch of lay people trying to explain a complex technology to lay people. So please submit all of your corrections via email to Adam, preferably, not me. Adam Adam will be happy to give you a refund. (laughs) (laughs) So the cycle duration for halvening is four years. And yet, here we are at three years, seven months, 10 days. It's happening several months early. And I think that's another interesting thing to pay attention to and understand some of the, some of the factors that go into how the heartbeat of Bitcoin is calculated and how that affects both the cycles that occur in the life cycle of Bitcoin, as well as the issuance of coins with the 21 million coin cap comes directly out of this heartbeat and the having algorithm. So an interesting way to look at this is to think of it as a clock. And the clock has, if you like, three different speeds. There's 
a day, where you can think of that as the second hand, and that transcribes 144 blocks in a day. Then you can think of the difficulty retargeting period, which is about two weeks, 2016 blocks, and that's the minute hand. And then the hour, which is 210,000 blocks, and that's the halving. And in fact, thanks to the work of some Bitcoiner, I don't see an attribution here, so I can't say who they are. Bitcoinclock.com is the source for that idea uh, that I just described. And you can see a really nice visual representation of that. And it shows you kind of how the three cycles intersect. But there are some small variations and, and time drift, if you like, in this, in this thing. Now, a block is supposed to come out every 10 minutes on average, and that's a, that's a Poisson distribution. It's a probabilistic distribution. So sometimes it comes out in 20 minutes, sometimes it comes out in two. You never know. But on average, over long periods of time, every 10 minutes. Except, of course, for two things. One, the hash rate has been increasing. The vast majority of uh, Bitcoin's life so far, uh, over seven years, uh, during each of the two-week retargeting periods, the vast majority of those have been an increase in difficulty to reflect the increase in hashing rates, which has been increasing almost constantly since inception. And what that means is that when each retargeting period comes around, the entire network looks back at the last two weeks and says, okay, how long did it take to do the last 2016 blocks? It should take 20,160 minutes. If it took less than 20,160 minutes to do that, then we need to make everything more difficult by the exact same proportion. If it took more than 20,160 minutes, then we need to make everything easier by the exact same proportion. And because of the hash rate increasing all the time, every two weeks, almost all of the two-week retargetings have been an increase in difficulty, but it's always lagging. It's always an after the fact. You've already done many fast blocks, and then you're trying to catch up to the hash rate, but the moment you catch up, it's already moved ahead. And so what that means is that we're running ahead of schedule. Uh, and that's how you get the several months of acceleration, which is why the halving is happening sooner. It's because blocks on average are not every 10 minutes. They're eight or nine minutes. And that we're constantly playing this race to catch up with the actual hash rate. And that's a very interesting factor. And then there's a little wrinkle to this, which is that there was a bug in the calculation for difficulty. And instead of adding up the last 2016 blocks, it actually only adds up the time for the last 2015 blocks and off by one error, <laughs> which adds 0.5%, I believe I calculated it once uh, in terms of difficulty to everything. So this is like a drift. It's like a clock that's not quite running perfectly on time, which means that this is going to affect everything. It's not going to change the total number of coins that are issued, but it means that just like the halvening is happening sooner, every halvening will happen sooner if we keep doing this increase in hash rate forever. Obviously, I doubt that's going to happen. And then that also means that the final year, 2141, is moving closer. Uh, we're going to issue all of, all of the Bitcoin sooner than we might otherwise because of this tremendously fast growth in the hash rate. 
Wasn't there also another bug? I, I, I was thinking when you said that, Andreas, like, how could they let that happen, uh, you know, off by one? And over time, it really screws things up. But wasn't there another bug that, like, when a certain block number was reached, like, the difficulty would essentially go back to the as it was at the beginning, or like the the block reward would go back to as it was uh, there, at the beginning. There was a bug in the halving algorithm, such that if it wasn't fixed in the year twenty one something, when you get the last halving, the one that drops the reward from one satoshi down, that's supposed to go to zero. Oh, right when the last Bitcoin right, is mined, <laughs> it was supposed to yeah. go to zero, but in in instead it would wrap around the clock and start issuing 50 Bitcoin rewards again. That was fixed. And the, the good news is we had 140 years to fix that and it got fixed. It got fixed a couple of years ago. It doesn't, <laughs> that bug would not have actually triggered anything until then. It didn't affect anything until the very last moment and that's been fixed. Uh, but you're right. And you know, there are, there are obviously bugs and in many cases with these bugs, the question is what is the cost to fix it? Um, and the cost to fix something like a off by one calculation of difficulty error is you'd have to do a hard fork with some gnarly code that says, you know, before the change, do it this way, after the change, do it that way. And that's actually not worth adding because the, the chances you introduce more bugs in consensus critical code are too high. So it's just like, just leave it. It doesn't really matter in the long run. So the difficulty period is something that's been fixed by other altcoins, right? Because you've got that two-week period, right, where you're essentially uh, testing the water, right? You have this period of productivity, and then you the system reassesses and updates based on that. But that's caused problems in the past, and there are concerns it'll cause problems in the future for Bitcoin, too. So, Andreas, I'm curious kind of what you think about um, that. One of the examples is, uh, with the halving coming up, is that some miners probably you know, on the lower end of that average are not going to be profitable with the reduced reward, even at these higher prices. And so just as it takes two weeks for, um, you know, an oversupply of blocks to be taken into account and adjusted for, it also would take an even longer period of time. It's probably worse, arguably, if there is not enough hashing power in the system. And so you get every block is slow because it's expecting more power, but because the reward dropped down, the incentives dropped. And so some people stopped doing it. And so it, like, you see the problem here. Um, is this a concern that is reasonable to have about the halving? Uh, does the, you know, and what in general, what do you think about the two week adjustment period now with the hindsight of a couple of years of seeing it in action with Bitcoin? Yeah, people have been worried about this um, scenario. And we've actually discussed it on a previous episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin because it's happened to a number of altcoins. Part of the reason it's happened to a number of altcoins is because of very, very rapid and very large changes in hashing power. So you have some testnet, for example, that most people are mining on CPU or something like that. Someone sticks an ASIC on for two weeks, <laughs> increases the difficulty by a very large factor, and then turns it off and drops out 80% of the hashing power in a single swoop. Bitcoin is not really that susceptible to those kinds of variations. And there is some concern among some people that when the halving happens, Miners will find themselves unprofitable, turn off their machines to stop using electricity. That will drop the hash rate significantly enough to cause a slowdown, which will produce slower blocks, which will be full. These slower blocks will make it less profitable for the rest of the miners, which will then turn off their machines. And you get this kind of, or there's a market panic and people 
sell, so the price goes down, which reduces the profitability, so more miners turn off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the truth is that um, I'm, I'm not that concerned about it for a number of reasons. The first one is that, um, as we said before, the distribution of efficiency within the mining uh, industry is, is not even. Not everybody is at the same level of efficiency. So some miners, yes, will become unprofitable. But I would like to think of it in terms of almost like an 80-20 rule, which is that 20% of the miners have 80% of the hashing power in terms of businesses, right? And 80% of the smaller miners who become unprofitable only have like a very small percentage of the hashing power because it's been so relentlessly competitive and because people have seen this coming. They've upgraded their equipment for the most part. And we've seen that in, in big increases in the hash rate, which almost all of it is from new equipment being installed at the latest level of efficiency. So they're going to be fine. And if some turn off, you will see a drop in the hash rate. I don't think it's going to be significant enough. Now, the other thing is, if I, my calculations are correct, and I'll need someone to check me on this, the halving happens halfway through a difficulty retarget. So we're going to be about one week in, and then a week later, the difficulty retargets. Is that planned? Was that was that like a, just a, you know, well-planned, or is it just, just like there are two separate systems that are just happening to fall that way? Well, I'm I'm not sure about this, but I, I would I think it's the case. I'm gonna like if you do the math quickly, the the having cycle is two hundred and ten thousand blocks, and the uh, mm. difficulty target is two thousand sixteen blocks, and those work out to be a ratio of one hundred and four point one six to one, right? Mm. So it's not an even ratio, and and that was probably deliberate. While they align nicely with mm. four years and two weeks, obviously years are not exact multiples of weeks. And I think that was done probably deliberately, I would assume, because you don't want these events to necessarily coincide every time and having a bit of difference between them so that they don't create kind of this resident rhythm is probably why that was done. That makes sense. So the scenario, uh, this scenario that's being described I think is not a very big concern for a number of reasons. One is, as I said, the, the amount of hash rate that might actually drop off is small. The other one, as I mentioned before, is that we do have indications from Chinese miners, which represent the, the majority, that they, many of them buy electricity in long-term contracts. Uh, so certainly leaving the equipment on until the end of the term, which does not overlap exactly with a halvening, would, would make sense. And as long as you can absorb that short-term simultaneous drop by everyone, then people dropping off here and there is something that happens all the time, so it won't really affect the long-term average. Worst comes to worst, you can change the retargeting algorithm without affecting the other aspects of Bitcoin to make it a bit more fine-grained so that you get a, a faster retargeting. Now, that, that would be a pretty significant move. That would be kind of an emergency um, upgrade. I absolutely don't think it's necessary, but it certainly is possible. And so then the question is, well, why isn't the retargeting set to a different schedule? Why two weeks? And the reason for that is because you have to strike a balance between reacting too swiftly to small changes, essentially following the curve too closely and being too detached from the curve. If you think about it, the difficulty retargeting, it's a proportional algorithm, um, which is the kind of thing you see in a... In a 
in a classic um, cruise control, right? Or the thermostat on in your house, right? If you if you make it too sensitive, then you're going to be flipping on and off the heat by every half degree of change in temperature in your house, right? Um, and that doesn't make much sense. You don't want to be adjusting that fast because then you, you start doing wild swings. Um, if you make it not sensitive enough, then you're going to be overshooting and undershooting by several degrees. And you have to get a kind of a, a golden balance there, right, right in between. Uh, some people have suggested using a more complex uh, PID, uh, proportionate integrative derivative function. That's what you see in, in cruise control systems and industrial control systems. In drones, for example, for balancing and things like that, they use those kinds of algorithms because they can they can revert to mean faster, meaning that if you have an oscillation in the curve, you can smooth out that oscillation and get back to a straight line faster. With the case of hashing, however, there's a lot of concern about not making the algorithm too complex because there are downsides to making it too complex. There's possibilities of people gaming it. The miners could like turn on a whole batch of equipment to make a change in the difficulty, then turn it off and start gaming the algorithm. Um, so simple, long-term, over two weeks, uh, medium-term really, uh, smoothing out the small fluctuations that are caused because of a power outage or a warehouse malfunction or something like that that might take some power off for a few days, but not for two weeks. All of those things kind of smooth out over a period of two weeks, and it it's kind of works. There are some edge cases, but um, we'll see. You know, this is a learning experience. We'll see whether that algorithm is to be tweaked to be more sensitive or not. So we've been talking about now, we haven't personally been talking about it a lot, but we did back in the day um, about the idea of having um, ASIC devices that are just included part of the package when you buy like a water heater, right? And the idea was is that these are things that generate heat. They're, they do a dumb function, so they don't really need to be networked in a strong way. They can be networked very uh, kind of ephemerally. And you can effectively have them just generating small amounts of Bitcoin, at least contributing hashing power as a passive way to do that, um, and then using the heat that's actually what's being created um, to do something else. And one of the reasons why that didn't make sense was because the technology was moving so fast that like you are going to buy a water heater and then three months later that part of it's obsoleted and you're effectively you know doing nothing with it but if we're kind of at the end of this logical trail then is i mean like is that an interesting concept again or are we still I think that away realization from that? that there was a wall uh moore's law represents a wall after which the shelf life of these devices starts approaching uh, consumer electronics at two years, and that tie between the possibility of uh, approaching the life cycle of consumer electronics uh, and uh, that being close to what mining does, meaning that you can open up the economics of consumer electronic purchasing through large companies that do consumer electronics, Qualcomm, uh, Samsung, etc., uh, to embed things in devices or to, as you said, the water heater, if the heating element gets changed every two years to make it slightly more efficient. And it's just a module that you pull out and plug a new one in, in the same slot. That realization, in, in my mind, and I, I'm not going to speak on their behalf, lies at the core of 21 Inc.'s business plan. And a number of other companies that have looked at that and decided, you know what, what this could do is the re-decentralization of mining. Because up to now, having a giant warehouse with hundreds of thousands of mining machines um, connected to megawatts of power, that 
element of centralization that was strongly encouraged by the economics of the very short supply chain, the very short shelf life, the uh, large capital investment, et cetera, et cetera. But those same incentives that create centralization now actually turn into disincentives if uh, you hit Moore's law and you can do this with consumer electronics, because having everything in one warehouse means that one problem with the warehouse, floods, power cuts, uh, et cetera, et cetera, takes out all of the equipment. So you now have a single point of failure. You have a concentration of risk. You have a concentration in risk in the organization that's purchasing, in their capital and cash flow situation, in their availability of electricity situation, in their ability to dissipate heat. All of these things become concentrations of risk, not advantage. So then if you take that model and you flip it on its head and you say, okay, you have 100,000 consumer devices um, that heat toast or water heaters or room heaters that are plugged into 100,000 outlets connected to 1,000 power stations in 1,000 towns around the world. Then the internet going down in one of them doesn't affect the whole. The power going down in one of them doesn't affect the whole. The upgrades happen much more smoothly because they spread out a different, the cash flow situation, the risk of investment, the problems with natural disasters, all of those risks get dispersed. It's um, like a decentralized network. Yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> many of the things that were advantages until now become disadvantages if you see that Moore's Law now becomes this insurmountable slowdown um, that changes the life cycle. I think that's, again, I'm not going to speak for them. I think that lies at the core of the vision of, of 21 Inc. I think it's a compelling argument. You get companies like Qualcomm or, or Samsung or companies like that to produce these chips. Their minimum order is a couple million. You do it as an economy of skill at the production, and these chips still have shelf life for two years, so you don't need to immediately turn them on mine and, and throw them away. You've got a completely different business model. I, I think we're going to start seeing that. It's going to be a few years, but um, but yeah, it, it changes the economics completely. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So that would really suggest that the uh, period that we've been in for the last couple of years has been kind of an outlier in the larger, uh, in the bigger picture here. And that really what's been happening is there was a limited time centralized opportunity to take advantage of this gap between the place where uh, you know, mining technology was versus the place where just consumer electronic technology in general was. And so during that period, it was a race to see who could get there as quickly as possible. But now that we're there, it, there's not really a race anymore, right? And now that we're there, like the people can continue running it, but fundamentally the advantage and the reasons to run it have changed from, from what we've been dealing with basically, you know, for the last three or four years. I, I've been talking about that for more than six months now um, as a concept of the re-decentralization of mining. The fact that this was an aberration caused by the massive increases in efficiency uh, in bridging that gap exactly. Now, a lot of people disagree with that theory. Um, and of course, we won't, we won't know. We will find, we will find we'll out. We'll find out. <laughs> but, uh, but it's going to be in, in interesting times. I think the economics are certainly changing quite dramatically now. All right, so I have one more uh, kind of uh, pivot topic on this one, and that's um, KNC Miner. Um, KNC Miner was one of the larger, possibly the largest, I don't exactly remember uh, where they ranked, non-Chinese mining operations. And they produced a lot of equipment. And Stephanie, I remember back, I guess it was about two years ago now, we had a conversation with Sam, the CEO, where he basically said that what Bitcoin mining needs is a hashing cartel. 
that would uh, essentially coordinate their releases of equipment to both make it so that manufacturers aren't screwing themselves and customers aren't screwing themselves. And they recently uh, declared, uh, I don't know if they actually formally declared bankruptcy, but they're out of business. Lots of people have this misunderstanding that bankruptcy means going out of business. And the two are distinct. In fact, bankruptcy is the tool by which you avoid going out of business um, in, in jurisdictions, at least that's the logic of it. Bankruptcy means I can no longer pay my creditors, so please stop them from bugging me while I try to restructure my operations. And that's a kind of a layperson description. Um, bankruptcy doesn't mean we're shutting offices or stopping doing business. It simply means we're stopping paying our creditors. We're going to restructure and see what we can pay under what conditions and, uh, and what discount. Um, so KNC declared bankruptcy, but they did not stop mining. And that's a really interesting observation. They continued to mine, which makes sense. You don't close uh, because the only way they can pay back their creditors is by continuing to generate cash flow. So, so what they're what they're doing is continuing to operate, at least for now. Now, if they do turn off everything, then that's not bankruptcy. That's the failure of bankruptcy to recover the business. And that is, you know, a liquidation of the business. And that's a different thing. I was uh, confusing liquidation with bankruptcy. They're running. And that's the thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, so they're running. So um, so anyways, the, the question just that I wanted to bring up in this context is, was there anything to what KNC was saying uh, that couple of years ago would you know? Is, I don't know if necessarily is that a solution to the problem that they're having, but would that have actually, do we think, made any sort of difference if they had managed to get a cartel going and you know could make it so that everybody was coordinating releases? And so you know, I mean, thinking about it from a Bitcoin meta sense, it would mean that you'd have larger, like you'd have a, a more of a stepping up of uh, hashing power rather than the more kind of gradual increase. That is really that, you know, you get that gradual increase because you have different companies that are all releasing at different times and they're trying to work to advantage, but so is everybody else. And so there's kind of like this game that's being played. Whereas if you have everybody on a schedule, then in the case of Bitcoin, because it's all relative to everybody else in the network, that might actually present a better option, both for people who are using the hardware and for people who are creating the hardware. So I'm just, I kind of wanted to throw that out there now with hindsight. Uh, you know, now that they are clearly having some kind of problem uh, and are having to reevaluate how they do their business, you know, was there anything to that or would that have been a solution to them, but it would have hurt the market in general? Why don't we ask the Saudis? <laughs> like, how's that going for you? You've had a cartel since the early 70s. Nobody's playing, nobody's playing the game anymore. Uh, nobody's playing the game anymore because cartels naturally devolve into this kind of situation. A cartel requires the participants of the cartel to suspend their own self-interest for short periods of time in order to, um, to jointly improve the situation for everybody. And, and in the short term, cartels work, uh, as did OPEC. It had enormous power for a very short period of time, the power to effectively almost shut down the United States in the 1970s during the oil crisis. But that power wanes. And one of the reasons it wanes is because when those parties are distressed, when they come under pressure because of their voters, because of a downturn, a recession, whatever, they no longer have the power. Their self-interest, they get greedy. Their self-interest outweighs their desire to keep with the agreement of the cartel. 
Yes, and even more than greedy is the desperate, right? Yeah, Which is that's an even right. more powerful. <laughs> so like, for example, at the moment, Saudi Arabia is in a financial crisis, a currency crisis, a massive uh, balanced budget crisis, and they're basically pumping as much as they can um, because their entire industry has become destabilized and all of the cartel stuff's gone out the window. And everybody's now racing to pump as much as they can, which is pushing the price down. So they're all acting in their own self-interest at the same time, damaging the entire market simultaneously, which is competition should do. It should reduce the margins for everyone because everyone acts in their interest. So yes, cartels work for a very short period of time, but in the long term, the market always wins. And I think we shouldn't read too much into KNC's bankruptcy as saying, okay, well, that shows there should have been a cartel, there shouldn't been a cartel, this business isn't sustainable. There's a lot of companies that have done very well in the, in the chip industry, because just this same week, Avalon sold for the biggest amount of money that has ever happened in this industry in an acquisition, right? Um, so by comparison, they're doing extremely well in their core business and managed a very big exit. But all this shows is that this is a viciously and fiercely competitive market, and that's a good thing. That means that Bitcoin creates competitive free markets which are constantly in flux. And every time someone gets worried about centralization or too much power in the hands of one miner, I'm like, yeah, give it a week. See what yeah, happens. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> all of the names you remember from last year, they don't even show up on the charts anymore. They're under the other category. Thanks for listening to episode 298 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was contributed by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music for today's show comes from Jared Rubens and editing by Adam B. Levine. The magic word for today's show is the number 25. So that's the number two followed by the number five. Don't try to spell it out or anything. You might have noticed the conversation started a bit abruptly. Enjoy this outtake of myself and the other hosts failing to remember when the last halving took place. You know, it's the year 2016. Uh, we actually were doing the show during the last happening. I remember. I remember it was the uh, first mm-hmm. uh, November, right? The first November we were doing the show in 2013. We had the happening and the and the reward drop from 50 Bitcoin per block to 25 Bitcoin per block. And there was a. I remember there was like some kerfluffle and drama around that, but I don't really remember too much happening. Wait a second, was that the bubble? <laughs> was that the bubble to a thousand? That was the bubble to a thousand month, wasn't it? Too. No, no, that was no, a I year earlier. That, yeah, that was a year earlier. Okay, it was so November so twenty twelve. Okay, so I'm getting my time frame confused. Then, so so. Well, I remember the last having day. Okay, so was that twenty twelve or twenty thirteen? I think it might have been twenty twelve. Let me okay. So that it was started the show. It was four years after January two thousand nine, right? Okay. On it's average every four years. So four years after January 2009. That would have been 2013. I think it was maybe, yeah, it was the end of 2000. The end of 2012. 12, yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so, so it was a little early. That's there what happened. There was a run-up yeah. after the first happening. It happened a few weeks later. Okay, so then if this happened in 2012... Then that was the time. So that was the run up where I sold all of my Bitcoin and bought a DSLR camera, 
when they went from... <laughs> yes, I remember you talked about that on the show. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's what that was. This was before we started the show, the, the winter before we started Let's Talk Bitcoin. Uh, there was the, the happening and the price of Bitcoin started going up. I guess it was in, yeah, it was in November that it happened. Um, oh, you so, can use the macro lens to take uh, high definition photos <laughs> of the tears of regret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was only 30 Bitcoin at the time. It was a real bargain. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you can send your complaints or corrections to Adam at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. Have a nice day. <laughs>